and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made. And all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. And who trembles at my word. He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord, who fully repays his enemies. Please keep your Bibles open there. It hardly seems uh, that long ago, but it was 2019 when the uh, Paris Cathedral, the Notre Dame de Paris, went up in smoke um, uh, on the 15th of April 2019 at 6.20 in the evening. And uh, it was a very severe fire that damaged uh, a large part of the building. Um, thankfully it didn't destroy all of the cathedral but it it destroyed a large part of it and the inside of it was pretty much gutted and so what did Mr Macron say he said well you know these things happen we'll just have to get on without it no what did he say he said we will rebuild it and we will rebuild it within five years and uh, they were absolutely determined that by this year, 2024, this cultural and uh, uh, historical um, icon of Paris will be resumed in its uh, former state, at least mostly, uh, and ready for church services again. It would be unthinkable for the French people to think of saying, forget about it. You know, it was nice when we had it, but it's gone now. We have to move on. They would never say that. And yet that's what a lot of people expect the Jewish people to say when it comes to the temple. And the temple was as much, if not even more important to the Jewish people than that cathedral was to the French in Paris. And a lot of people cannot understand the desire, but until you put it in its context, you don't realize how important the temple is to the Jewish people to this day. And to this day, Jewish men dress in black. You know why they dress in black? Because they're mourning the temple that they have lost. That's why they all dress in black. And uh, this is why they have black tassels on their prayer robes instead of the blue ones, which the uh, priestly commandment in the book of Leviticus 
sorry, Numbers 15, uh, commands for them because they're mourning the loss of their temple. And uh, they're looking forward to the day, one day in the future, when they will get their temple back. You see, the temple was destroyed in AD 70, as the Lord Jesus Christ said it would be. In Luke 19 and Luke 21, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples that the day was coming when Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies. And uh, when that happened, get out and flee, he said, because they're going to destroy the city. And he told his disciples on one occasion when they were pointing out the glories of the temple, he said to them, not one stone here will be left on top of another. And the words of Christ came exactly true in AD 70 when the Romans, under the leadership, first of all of Vespasian and then later Titus, came and conquered Jerusalem, scattered the Jews to the four winds of the world and destroyed their temple. And it's even carved in stone and the Arch of Titus in Rome which you can see, and and what you can see on that is uh, the golden menorah and uh, the uh, table and the trumpets and so on being carried out by the soldiers, carried away uh, to Rome from that event. It was a a big event uh, that the Jewish people mourn to this day. And this is something that they've never forgotten. And the Jewish people are looking to get their temple back. And believe it or not, this is something which the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets said would one day happen. The Bible in four places says that temple that was destroyed in AD 70 is one day going to be rebuilt again. Let me show you some scriptures. First of all, Daniel 9, verse 26 and 27, which we were looking at last week, part of a complicated prophecy. But this prophecy uh, described, you remember, as part of the verse that we looked at in verse 26 last week, the destruction of the temple and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Daniel was given that before the second temple was rebuilt. So there's Daniel praying for the Jewish people to go back to their land and be reestablished. And, and part of the prophecy he gets from God is that the temple is going to be destroyed again. Well, that told him the temple was going to be built again, but it was going to be destroyed again. But the prophecy went on and it spoke about uh, the man who was to come, the man we call the Antichrist. And it says, but in the middle of the week, that's not a seven year, not seven day week, a seven year week, a week of years. uh, But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering in verse 27. Now, where is the sacrifice and offering in anywhere in Israel? It's in the temple. And so even though Daniel was told that the second temple will be built and destroyed, he was told there will be a third temple as well. And we've never had a third temple. They've only had two. And that was the prophecy given to Daniel. Uh, But not only Daniel, the Lord Jesus Christ himself spoke of this. In Matthew chapter 24, 15, you remember the the sermon, the Olivet Discourse, which gave his commands to the disciples uh, about his teaching to the disciples about the second coming. He said this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then he said that those who are in Jerusalem flee. 
Well, he's speaking about the abomination of desolation. That's an idol that's going to be put up in the temple. It was prophesied by Daniel, a repeat of the event uh, that happened in the days of a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. And Jesus said it's going to happen again. It's going to be set up in the holy place. Well, where's the holy place? The holy place, if you know anything about the temple, is the inner sanctum where God's presence is said to dwell, the holy of holies, there's going to be an idol set up there in the holy place. So Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, 15, tells us there is going to be a rebuilt temple one day in the future as well. Not only the Lord Jesus, but the Apostle Paul said this as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when Paul is talking to the church at Thessalonica uh, about things that are going to happen before the Lord comes back, he says, And the man of sin, that's the Antichrist, is revealed. He said, The son of perdition, that's one of his names because he's going to destruction like we saw this morning, the little horn, he'll be cast into the lake of fire. He's going to destruction. This man who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, can you see that prophecy is telling us that the Antichrist is going to set himself up in God's temple in Jerusalem, and he say, okay, I'm God, and you worship me. What a blasphemy. What a blasphemy, but that's coming. But for that to happen, the temple has to be rebuilt because he's going to set himself up in the temple. So that's three scriptures we've got telling us the temple will be rebuilt. And the fourth is in the last book, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. The the passage begins with John being given a measuring reed for measuring. And the angel said... Uh, stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Some people try to twist that and make that to be about the church somehow, quite what you measure and quite what the altar is and who worships there and so on. I don't know how you do that. But uh, the, the prophecy is about the temple of God being rebuilt. And that's the fourth scripture you can see. So four times in the New Testament, three times in the New Testament, and at least one in the Old Testament, we're told that temple is going to be rebuilt. And this is a part of the prophetic program for the last days that the scriptures revealed, is that in Jerusalem, literal Jerusalem, in literal Israel, there is going to be a literal temple rebuilt in the last days. That's one of the things that's going to happen. And what's fascinating is in our day is we are seeing the Jewish people prepare for this event very actively. Ever since they've been coming back to the land, this has been what they wanted to do. In 1967, of course, you had the Six-Day War and the Jewish people regained Jerusalem. Uh, And as a part of that, they regained the Temple Mount. But they gave it back to the Muslims. They gave it back to the Arabs, and it's under the rule of the uh, Islamic uh, authorities at the moment. But they've longed to get that temple back so that they can rebuild that temple. And if you go to the old city of Jerusalem today, you will see an organization which is forefronting the work. And it's not the only one. There's a number of other organizations, the Temple Mount Faithful, uh, the the organization for the restitution of the temple and so on like that. Uh, 
the Temple Institute, but they have a, a, a center in the old city of Jerusalem which is dedicated to rebuilding and preparing the things, the hardware for the rebuilt temple for when it comes. And you can go there, as I've been there when I went to Israel. I bought my photos of what's there tonight, if anybody would like to see. They're on the trolley down the front here. And uh, you can see the things that they've started making as implements, parts of the furniture of the temple to be reused. This is uh, the uh, menorah, the golden lamp stand, which is, uh, it qualifies, it qualifies. Whether it will actually be the one that's used, they only say it qualifies to be used because of the way it was made. It was made uh, out of the uh, right amount of gold, hammered gold work and so on. But that's uh, uh, one of the uh, lampstands that will be in the temple probably. Here we have the priestly garments, um, the, the high priest in blue and the regular priest in white. Now these were the first things they made. The, the skill in making these is breathtaking. The white garments are all made of one, it's one seamless robe. No stitching. How do you make a garment without stitching? No stitching, no seams. And they have a special old-fashioned wooden loom type thing where they make these beautiful garments. And uh, they're ready for the priest to wear. The, the golden box in front of them is the altar of incense where they'll offer the incense and pray to God in the temple. The, in the side uh, cupboards you can see some of the what are called the utensils when you're reading the exodus account of the tabernacle and you read about the different utensils for the altars and that that's uh, what it's talking about the spades the shovels the forks the wick trimmers and things like that some of those are in there this is uh, the table of showbread and it's, it's got stacks because they have a special way of stacking the, the showbread so that it's able to stay in the presence of God for a week without going mouldy. And to have that, so you've got to have it so that the bread doesn't touch each other. And uh, this is a, a beautiful piece of the furniture that they've made. And we could go on. There's many things that they've made. They have cut a cornerstone. And Solomon Gershom, the leader of the faithful Mount uh, Temple of Temple Mount Faithful has twice tried to get it up onto the Temple Mount, uh, once back in 2000 and uh, another time more recently, I believe. And they've, they've been trying to get that there as a starting point for rebuilding. Uh, not only that, if you go to the land of Israel, you will see adverts on buses. Buses that have adverts with pictures of the temple. And they will be off asking you to donate towards the large expense of the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, so this is very much happening in our day and age today. This is, you've got to understand this is deep in the Jewish psyche and culture. You know, when a Jewish person gets married, I don't know if you've ever noticed this uh, in the wedding ceremony. Instead, you know, I, I like our English way. We say, you may now kiss the bride. Okay? But uh, in the Jewish wedding service, you can now smash the glass. And they have a glass, and what they do is they normally wrap it up in a tea towel or something, or uh, sometimes in tin foil. And the bridegroom, he smashes the glass with his foot. And that's like it, you're married then. Somebody said, from that point, you're smashed, you know. But uh, why do they do that? Because they're saying that although this is a joyful occasion, we remember our temple has been destroyed, smashed. The most happiest day in a couple's married life 
And that's how they remember it, remembering the temple. You know, every year they have something called Jerusalem Day. It's quite controversial because uh, it leads to a lot of tension, a little bit like marching season in, uh, in Northern Ireland. But what the Jewish people have is a celebration of Jerusalem. And they are making a public statement to the Muslim authorities that belongs to us. And one day we're having it back. And millions and millions and millions of Jewish people come to Jerusalem. They march through the city to say that. They also celebrate something called Tisha B'Av or the 9th of Av. Now the 9th of Av is a day in August which is a day of mourning for the Jewish people because it was the day the Romans destroyed the temple. In fact, here's a strange twist. It was the same calendar day that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. And the same day, actually on the calendar, if you work it out chronologically, that the spies came back with an evil report and so on. It's a day they remember with mourning. And uh, what that day is, is a day of mourning for their temple. And they have, have posters out, time to mourn, a time to rebuild. So what I'm trying to get across to you tonight is the Jewish people are very much looking forward to rebuilding this temple in Jerusalem. This is not some uh, wacky thing that some preachers just invented to try and make his theory fit about a Bible passage. This is really happening right now in your world today. And I want to say this, that our current situation in Israel is feeding into this as well. Because the whole uh, recent conflict and the upset with the Arabs from the Gaza Strip has led the Jewish mindset to be, we don't care anymore. We don't care anymore. This is how you treat us, we don't care anymore. And it is a very tender moment as to whether or not now, they will say, now's the time to rebuild. And the mosque, we don't care anymore. It could happen now. In fact, I would tell you this, I would say, the current situation where we're waiting to see will there be peace treaties signed with Hamas? My personal opinion, oh, I could be proved wrong tomorrow. I could be proved wrong tomorrow. This is not a prophecy. But my personal opinion is it won't happen. And I'll tell you why. I think Benjamin Netanyahu is holding on for the 5th of November. You say the 5th of November. What great Jewish festival happens on the 5th of November? It's the American elections. And what he's waiting for is Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who actually got the embassy moved to Jerusalem, <coughs> recognized Jerusalem as the capital, has also made a promise that he will help them with the rebuilding of the temple. And in fact, oh, why do I get the slides all muddled up? Sorry. They have a coin minted. And the coin has Donald Trump... And it has Cyrus the Great, who was from the Old Testament, the man who um, was instrumental, instrumental in God's plan for the rebuilding of the second temple with the children of Israel coming back uh, in Isaiah, actually, Isaiah 44 and 45. And uh, they're saying, Donald Trump's our man 
to rebuild it. And that's actually a half shekel coin. You know the significance of that? The half shekel is the tax for every man for the temple. Isn't that beautiful? Every detail's right. So they're hanging on, they're waiting. Now, I'm not telling you it's going to happen in our lifetime. But I want to tell you, it's never looked more likely than it's going to happen in our lifetime. Here's another little thing. I just got my slides in the wrong order, but let me go back to this. The Copper Scroll. You know, in 1947, the Jewish, not the Jewish people, the Arabs who were in the um, Dead Sea area, an Arab um, boy was looking for his flock of goats and uh, the story goes that he couldn't find them and he threw a stone up into a cave expecting to uh, hit a, a, a goat and make it bleat, see if it was there. And instead what he heard was a crack. And he went up to see what it was and he found all these old jars. And in these jars were scrolls. It was the Dead Sea Scrolls, the greatest archaeological find ever. And it authenticated the Bible. And all those scrolls were on parchment and on vellum. But for one, one was hammered onto copper. And it was so tightly wound, it couldn't be undone without it disintegrating until just recently where they've been able to unfold it without breaking it. And they've translated it. And it is a treasure map for where the articles were hidden by the Jewish people from the time of the destruction of the second temple. Where they hid things like the anointing oil for the priest, where they hid uh, smaller articles uh, and items, maybe even, in their minds, the Ark of the Covenant as well. Now, the difficulty is not reading this. The difficulty is, is matching it up with the locations because time has been favourable to the t- Copper Scroll, but it hasn't been favourable to the land. And the land has eroded and different landmarks are now in place, so interpreting it is taking time. But believe me, money and time is being invested to search for those things in that Copper Scroll. It's a fascinating thing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we are uh, at the stage where, as in this picture here, you see a picture of the temple in Jerusalem where the Dome of the Rock once stood. And yet it's not an ancient picture. It's a modern picture. There's a man down here in a blue shirt watching the builders with with their cranes assemble the pieces which they have already got ready to go. And they're saying... It's time to rebuild. Now, I want to tell you tonight, before we get excited, this is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Because Isaiah the prophet, who was no enemy of the temple, he received his call from God in the temple. You remember Isaiah chapter 6 where he saw the vision of the angels saying, holy, holy, holy. And he himself who in chapter 2 prophesied the millennial temple where Christ will reign from. Where it says, we will go up to the temple and be taught the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord will come out of Jerusalem. And he who prophesied Cyrus by name would be the man who God would use to bring the temple back. He says here, this temple is not good. And there's one temple that God never sanctioned. And that's the temple that they're going to build next, which is the temple the Antichrist will set himself up in, in the tribulation. It's the temple that is not sanctioned by the Lord. 
And I want us to see tonight what the Lord says about this. Because if this prophecy does come to pass, if these prophecies do come to pass, there's going to be a lot of Christians who are going to be responding in the wrong way. They're going to be saying, great, the Dome of the Rock's gone and now we've got the temple. But it's not great. And God tells us why in this passage. This temple will fail in three ways. It will fail to provide God with a sanctuary, verses 1 and 2. It'll fail to please God with a sacrifice in verses 3 and 4. And it will fail to praise God with a song in verses 5 and 6. So let's have a look and see what this uh, is that the Lord says here. First of all, he says this next temple will fail to provide him with a sanctuary. Verse 1 of Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made and all these things exist, says the Lord. The Lord starts off by proclaiming his greatness as God. And he says, my throne is in the heavens. And the earth, the planet, is my footstool. Now, if you ever look at an ancient picture of um, some of the kings of Egypt, and you can see this up at the British Museum. I think there's a picture of Tutankhamun. He has a footstool at the bottom of his throne. And it was where often the enemies of the king would have their names or their their faces carved on the footstool, so it was under his feet. It was like an emblem of being under the authority of the king. Well, God says heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And this is words which the Lord Jesus Christ took and applied uh, in a number of different places. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 verse 34, Jesus said, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, meaning where he will reign in the future. Matthew 23, Jesus said, and he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And so we see that God has a throne that is far bigger than the temple they would build for him on earth. And the earth is his footstool. The whole planet is his footstool. So what house are you going to build me that's big enough for me to come and dwell in? That's his point. And he's echoing the point here that Solomon made when uh, Solomon dedicated the first temple. Do you remember those wonderful words in in his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8? He said, the heaven, even the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. I think that's 1 Kings 8, 27. And uh, he's saying here, there's no, this, this is just a token effort compared to your greatness and where you will sit. And so the Lord says to them, this place is too small. And this was why Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, was able to defend himself to the Sanhedrin with this very scripture when he was accused of, of uh, trying to promote uh, the turning away from the law and the destruction of the temple. He said this in Acts 7 verse 48, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, and then he quotes Isaiah 60. Six. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, etc. So God doesn't need a sanctuary on earth 
for him to dwell in. He has something far bigger and better that his own hands have created. Not the hands of men, but he has created heaven in all its glory. And he has made the earth for his footstool. And so he says, all these things exist and I don't need them. Now, that's his statement to those who will rebuild the temple. This place is not needed for me to dwell in. Now, at that point, some Jewish person may say, we get that, we get that. We remember Solomon said those things. We know this is in Isaiah. But does it not say in the law that God will set his eyes on Jerusalem forever? It does say that, doesn't it? It says that in the book of Deuteronomy. He will set his eyes there from one end of the year to the other. He will set his eyes on this place. And that's what they will say they're trying to do. Just make a place for him to set his eyes on. But look how the Lord answers this in verse 66, verse 2 in the second half. He says, but on this one will I look. Not on the city, not on the temple, but on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. He said, the one I'm going to look on is the one who humbly comes to me and asks me to save him and puts their trust in me. That's the one I'm going to look on. And this is looking forward to the New Testament when the church becomes the temple of God. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit now in this dispensation. And God lives in us and he says, this is the one I'm looking on, the one who's the believer. And I'm looking on them, not on this place instead. So we see God's own words about this next temple to be built which is the one he hasn't sanctioned, he says, I'm not going to come and live in it. And you realize it's the only temple that God will never have come to. He came to the first one. You remember when Solomon built the temple and the Shekinah glory filled it. The priests had to leave the building. They couldn't, they couldn't continue. The Lord Jesus Christ himself came as a baby and then continually as an adult to the temple in Jerusalem through his earthly life and ministry. And he will come again but he's not coming to that temple. He's not going to go in there. And uh, this is something which God himself says. So this is an interesting thing. This temple will fail to provide a sanctuary. Rather, what God wants is a humble heart to be a temple place for him. I wonder if you're willing to give your heart to the Lord to be his temple tonight. You know, the old hymn said, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee. Have you said that to the Lord? He wants to come and reign in your heart, even tonight. So uh, ask him in. But the provision of God for a sanctuary, it will fail in that respect. But secondly, it will fail to please God with a sacrifice. You see, the purpose of the temple is to offer sacrifices. It's to be a place of meeting God and man with the blood uh, uh, that will um, uh, uh, supposedly atone for sin and enable man to draw near to God. And one of the fascinating things, I'm afraid I didn't get time to finish my PowerPoint before coming out tonight with these pictures, but in Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem, you not only have the Temple Institutes, but you have theological colleges called yeshivas. And yeshivas are are like seminaries for the priests. It's a fascinating thing. Those garments that we saw there for the priests, they have measured and kitted out the priests ready for the temple. Every man who qualifies is measured and has his garments and he has a box. 
And on the box it is written these words. When the, temple, when the dome of the rock comes down, bring this box or put these, these garments on and report to the temple mount for duty. That's what it says on top. Because they're expecting to go there and start initially sacrifices straight away. Even though the temple won't have been built to cleanse the, sac- the, the temple and so on. And uh, they are very pleased to have the uh, ashes or, or have the potential of the ashes of a red heifer again um, for the cleansing re- required in Numbers chapter 19. And uh, they are training the Levitical men how to do these sacrifices. You've got you to understand to be a priest you practically had to be a butcher. You had to learn how to, how to separate the meat, how to, how to skin the animal, what was sacred, what was to be taken outside and burnt, and things like this. And they had to learn how to do this. What do you do with the blood? How do you use this utensil? How do you use that? And so they have training seminaries for these people, and they're being trained now, today, mm-hmm. at the moment. This is happening now. And they're getting ready for these sacrifices but the thing is, even though they're going to offer sacrifices that were prescribed in the law of Moses, those sacrifices are still not going to be acceptable to God. In fact, they are going to be an abomination to God. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has come and by his death on the cross, he has been the sacrifice to end all the law sacrifices so you and I can be forgiven once for all as it says again and again in the book of Hebrews by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified Hebrews 10:14 and so what does god say about their sacrifices here in Isaiah 66 verse 3 he says he who kills a bull is as if he slays a man he who sacrifices a lamb As if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering. As if he who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense. As if he blesses an idol. That's pretty, pretty heavy response from God. He's saying those sacrifices. They're going to be as acceptable to me as pagan sacrifices. Which is what these are. And uh, slaying men, unfortunately in the Old Testament, slaying children and so on, was a part of the pagan sacrifices. Um, And uh, it's a twisted thing uh, that that even the word holocaust actually means burnt offering. And uh, God's going to say it's going to be as acceptable to me as the holocaust was. It won't be acceptable. That's what he's saying. It'll be a a rejection. Uh, The lamb will be, the sacrificial lamb, or the kid as it can be translated in the Hebrew, will be as if someone broke a dog's neck. Now in Exodus 13, there's a command if a a lamb is born, a firstborn lamb has to be, uh, a donkey has to have its neck broken when it's born, either that or you redeem it with a firstborn lamb. Uh, But this is a dog's neck that is broken. And a grain offering with swine's blood. What a contrast that is. The swine's blood. Now that takes you back to Antiochus Epiphanes who actually sacrificed a pig on the altar and dedicated it to Zeus, which is why they have the Feast of Hanukkah every year for when they rededicated the altar. 
And he says it's going to be as acceptable as that. And he who burns incense is going to be no better than he who worships an idol. So God says these sacrifices, even though they're in the Levitical law and you're doing them, they're totally unacceptable to me. Why? Because God has paid the price already through his son. These sacrifices are unnecessary. And the blood of Jesus on the cross is sufficient once and for all to cleanse us from our sins and give us a place in heaven. The trouble is people don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. And this is what God goes on to say in verse 3. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. And they said, we're going to go our own way instead. And even though they're trying to go a religious way, that religious way is not acceptable to God. And God will judge them for it. And in fact, he says, you choose your own way and I'm going to choose your judgment for you. That's what he says. I'll match your choosing with my choosing. And my choosing will be delusion. Do you remember we looked at that a couple of weeks back in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12? The great delusion that's going to come on the world through the Antichrist uh, as God gives them over to the delusion uh, so that they fall for him in the last days. God says, I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. What terrible fears the Jewish people have of, uh, of, of holocausts and pogroms and so on. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. They didn't listen when the gospel call was going out. And I just want to say this tonight because, you know, I think this has a real application for us as well, doesn't it? Because we're living in a day and age today where you try and tell people the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ and you share the gospel with people. And you know what they say? They say, oh, I go to church. I'm religious. You know, I I light my candles and I do my things and I go to mass. And what they're saying is, I'm not listening to what you're saying, God, but I am doing religious things. Therefore, I'm all right. And God says, no, you're not. You're not. And those things are no more acceptable to me than the things of witchcraft, which is what these pagan sacrifices are. Listen, we need to remember God's word to King Saul in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 15. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed better than, to heed than the fat of rams. For the rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. We need to realize that God doesn't accept religion in the place of obedience to his call. And if you're putting off God's gospel call to your soul tonight, saying, no, thank you, God, I'm going to do it my religious way, then listen carefully to what he said to Israel and what he says about it in the future. The sacrifices are unacceptable unless they're the sacrifice of Christ. And uh, this temple will fail in this way as well, to provide God with a sanctuary and to please God with a sacrifice. But thirdly, he says, it'll fail to praise God with a song. 
Verse 5 and 6 are a little bit more complicated, but it's addressed to the believers at that time. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. You know, back in verse 2, he said, this is the one I look on. He who trembles at my word has a poor and contrite spirit. Those who put their trust in the Lord. And in the tribulation time, when this temple will be built, there will be Jewish people who will do that. And praise God for that. There will be people who will, who will say, I'm going to trust in Yeshua and be saved. And I'm not going to have anything to do with that, uh, that rebuilt temple. Well, when that happens, God says, this is what's going to happen. In the second half of verse 5, he says, Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. It's very difficult to understand all that's being uh, communicated here, but two things I do understand is that they're going to cast them out, who cast you out for my name's sake, and they're going to say, Let the Lord be glorified. And actually, we have a precedent of that, Anybody remember where that precedent is in the Bible? It's with the blind man who was at the pool of Siloam. And they cast him out. And what did they say in John 9? They said, give God the glory. As for this man, we know he's a sinner. The very words used here. And this is what's going to happen to the Jewish believers they're going to be cast out of their communities, cast out of their homes, cast out of their synagogues. And they're going to say, well, give God the glory rather than this man. But God comforts the believers and he says they shall be ashamed. And uh, what they think they're doing to bring God praise is going to backfire because uh, they, they want you to join with them in their, in their music and in their sacrifices and so on to bring God a song of praise. But it's going to be a different sound that's heard from the temple. Verse 6 says, the sound of noise from the city. Now, the Hebrew is a shame they've translated this as the word sound. If you use a King James Version you'll notice it uses the word voice and it's voice all three times in this verse. The voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. It's not that the temple is going to be silent, that there's going to be no sounds coming from the temple. There are going to be sounds and there's going to be a voice, a voice, a voice says this. And there's going to be a voice heard. It's going to be the voice of the Lord in judgment. Here's a fascinating thing. If you want to see it, really blow your socks off. If you've got a copy of Josephus at home, read about the days after Jesus died as what happened before the second temple was destroyed. Like we saw in Daniel 9.26 after the Messiah was cut off. Let me read to you uh, just one little snippet which uh, is here in my notes. Okay, It says that, and this is uh, from the history of the wars of the Jews, Josephus' book. He says that the temple doors flew open suddenly of their own accord. Now you might thought, oh, maybe it was a windy day. Let me just put this clear. I think I'm right in saying it took 12 men for each door to push these heavy doors open. These doors are huge, very heavy doors. But these doors suddenly, on their own, blew open. And it says here that then the priests heard a noise of motion or movement or shifting in the most holy place. And presently a voice, they heard a voice saying, let us depart hence. And sometime after, 
one man called Jesus Bar Annas went up and down the city at the Feast of Tabernacles continually crying, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the temple, a voice against all this people. Now I've got to tell you that just, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's this verse being fulfilled, isn't it? How it was in AD 70. And God says that's what's going to happen again in the future too. They will hear a voice, a voice, a voice. It's not that there won't be any sound. There will be, but it won't be a song of praise. It'll be the voice of the Lord in judgment in the temple when he judges it. And we know how that will happen at the end of the tribulation. Uh, or actually in the midpoint of the tribulation when the Antichrist goes up and sets up his abomination there. And the eyes of the Jewish people are awakened to realize who he really is. That he is uh, an imposter and they've been duped. So the next temple is going to be built, friends. It may be built in our lifetime. It may be built in the near future with the current conflict being instrumental. Maybe. But if it is, it's not a good thing. And I want you to see that. I want to get it into you. It is no more acceptable to God than the Dome of the Rock is. Because it is equally a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, this is unacceptable to me. See, the real heart of the issue is this. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 12, verse 6 said this. Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. And what they need is not a temple. What they need is a person. They need the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friends, so do you. If you've yet to make Christ your saviour and your Lord, don't say, well, I go to church. It's not going to church. It's coming to Christ. It's him personally you need. So I hope these things will stay in your memory as you see the things unfold in our world. And let's pray for our precious Jewish friends that they come to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and they don't fall for the things that God warns against in Isaiah. Amen. We're going to sing our final hymn this evening, Come, O Fount of Every Blessing.